0: Today's podcast is brought to you by the letter P. P stands for a lot of important things, like pear, pineapple, postman. Poor me, my society and economic future has been upended by a global pandemic that, while some hopeful signs appear to be emerging, that the curve is flattening, the road to normalcy seems way too long and uncertain, and maybe it's okay to have a beer at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Like, what else is there to do anyways? But also, you know that maybe you should go for that run first, and you get changed into your running clothes, and you stand in the kitchen in your running clothes, looking at the fridge, when you turn and look at the clock and realize that you've been standing there thinking about this for five minutes, and then you realize that you become lost in a new version of you that is forming within the walls of your apartment, and you don't know whether to fight or embrace it. P also stands for Patreon. Ontario Loud is supported through listener support through Patreon. Head to OntarioLoud.ca or Patreon.com slash OntarioLoud. There are multiple different tiers for you to subscribe at, anywhere from $3 to $15 a month. It's enough for me on the show.
1: Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, current affairs, hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Alvin Tejo. I'm Chris Martin. And today we're continuing our dive into politics in the time of COVID. After our conversation with Dr. David Coletto of Abacus Data, on how incumbent political parties are faring during the crisis and what opposition parties should be doing now, we wanted to take a deeper look into Ontario's opposition parties, all of whom are on the progressive side of the spectrum in contrast to the governing Conservatives. Today's special guest to talk about this is Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. But before we talk to Mike, let's take a quick look at what the opposition parties have been saying so far during the COVID crisis. Leader of the official opposition, Andrea Horvath, has unsurprisingly been focused on frontline healthcare workers, advocating for more personal protective equipment, sick days, and even free parking. And as my wife works as a nurse in the ER, I certainly appreciate her efforts. Newly elected leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, Stephen Del Duca, has until recently gone out of his way to appear as constructive and congratulatory to the Conservative government, praising them for their quick actions while also continuing to draw attention to gaps in the system. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner has been calling for increases in social assistance rates, limiting staff to work at only one facility, which the government has recently announced, and demanding to know why the province is so far behind on testing. A quick reminder that here in Ontario Loud, that we're all fairly progressive, but despite our experience working for various progressive parties, we'll try not to make these discussions partisan. I'm not here speaking on behalf of the Ontario Liberal Party, nor any other party. We're just here to have an exciting and informative discussion about Ontario politics. So with that, today we're really excited to have Mike Schreiner, the Member of Provincial Parliament for Guelph, who was elected in 2018 with 45% of the vote current leader of the Green Party of Ontario, husband and father of two. Welcome to the pod, Mike.
2: Thanks, Alvin. Thanks, Chris. A pleasure to join you today.
1: Thanks, Mike. Uh, We're really excited to have you here. And uh, I wanted to start off our discussion by asking how you and your family have been dealing with all of this. What's your routine been like day to day as a leader of a party while you're social distancing?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for asking. And I think uh, like many families in Ontario, uh, we're mostly at home together and uh, trying to figure out working arrangements. Uh, I'm fairly lucky. My wife and I both can have separate offices where we can you know, be physically distant from each other because both of us are doing uh, a lot of uh, conference calls, Zoom calls, things like that all day long. Of course, I've had to go into the legislature a few times uh, because we've had some special sittings. Uh, and you know, so I have ventured out to do that. I venture out like most people once a week or so to do some grocery shopping. But other than that, we've uh, mostly been inside, and you know, I-, I hope spending good quality family time together while also trying to continue day to day
0: work. Two people doing work in the same house is a sort of a common theme, and you know, I, I feel like every single time I go to the grocery store now, it is um, you know one of the top five most stressful times I've been to a grocery store in my life. So uh, I feel like even even that even even that is a lot, even on top of being an MPP. So uh,
2: yeah, I'll have to tell you, going to the grocery store. I talked about this a little bit in the house. Uh, uh, the other day is that, you know, I almost, you look at people and we're all sort of looking at each other and there's like this slight level of fear that we feel, but also this desire to talk to people and you're resisting the urge because you know, you have to remain physically distant. And obviously being an MPP, a lot of people recognize me in the grocery store. And so I've had a few people, you know, put a, put a scarf over their mouth or, you know, pull their mask up Stay uh, two meters or six feet away from me, and and you know, wanna talk to their MPP, and you know, yeah. which is, was a very common thing in the grocery store. Every time I would go grocery shopping, nobody in my family used to want to go with me because I'd spend so much time talking to people. Now, of course, they don't go with me because of physical distancing. But it's interesting how even those most day-to-day activities are completely different now than they were a month and a half ago.
0: Building on that maybe a little bit. Um, Greens have always said they like to do politics differently. That's sort of a a really common theme in the Green Party and with mm-hmm. two independents, eight liberals, 40 new Democrats in the legislature, all up against a majority conservative government. I'm just curious for your view of those like in this time, how are you finding working with your fellow opposition MPPs? And has your experience over the last two years changed your initial view of politics since being elected?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question because there's a bit of a pre-COVID and post-COVID element to that question for me. Uh, You're right. I mean, it's really, I think, part of the Green Party's DNA to uh, try to tone down the partisanship and take some of the toxicity out of politics that we've seen increasingly over the last decade or so, especially south of the border. And so I've really tried to bring that spirit of cooperation to Queen's Park, we're certainly seeing more of it uh, since the COVID crisis started, not only among the three progressive parties, but also the government as well. And of course, we don't all disagree. Agree. Uh, there's lots of disagreement, but I think everyone right now is really trying to work together to push unanimous consent motions to fast track legislation through the legislature uh, in order to get support out to people to make sure, you know, emergency orders are being extended and, and things like that. And so there's been, a, I think, a remarkable degree of cooperation and coordination among all four parties uh, since the crisis. I mean, certainly we've had our moments. I tend to approach it in the legislature that, you know, I talk about the ways in which we're cooperating. Uh, I t- try to avoid criticizing the government's efforts because I want to be supportive of their efforts but I also try to point out where I think there are gaps in the response and in particular you know what I said recently in the legislature is you know nobody has more demands on them right now than the premier of Ontario you know in Ontario and every time I put additional so I want to acknowledge that but every time I put additional demands on the table It's really to articulate what people in my riding and across Ontario are telling me that are gaps in the government's response. And I feel like it's important as an opposition member to make sure that we articulate that voice and we give those people a voice in the legislature. And I will have to say that the government house leader in my conversations with uh, MPP Calandra, he acknowledges that and respects that and, you know, says, you know, we need cooperation from the opposition right now in a way that most majority governments never do. But at the same time, we also recognize that, you know, opposition members have a really important constitutional role to play as well. And, you know, we expect you to push us. And and so that's exactly, I think, you know, that's the approach I've taken. I think it's the approach the other opposition parties have taken as well. Uh, Prior to COVID, you know, obviously a lot more confrontational in the legislature. And in that case, I've really tried to work together with um, the other opposition parties wherever possible. So I helped organize a news conference, for example, uh, against Bill 108, which was the one that uh, really changed development rules, I think opened things to sprawl, gutted the Endangered Species Act uh, last year. And, uh, you know, I was proud to say that. You know, we had uh, all three opposition parties speak out together against the bill, uh, against that bill, and we even brought in developer, a developer, in as part of our news conference as well. You know, which I thought was interesting, given the fact that you know most people saw that as a pro-developer bill, to have developers raising some concerns around you know, uh, reducing environmental protections in particular, you know, which would facilitate sprawl. Uh, so, you know, but there's also been challenges, too. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's not always easy uh, to work with the opposition. And I think in particular, there's historical animosity between the the liberals and the NDP, especially, uh, just given the fact they've been competing with each other for a long time. <laughs> uh, and so it, I will have to say it's been easier to work uh, with the Liberals, if I'm being honest. But I think that's partly because, you know, technically the Liberals and Greens were independents because neither one of us have official party status. And so we've been forced to work together. Uh, and, and I think that's that's worked out well. But I've also tried to work with the Conservatives when, when that opportunity presents itself as well. And so, you know, I always tell people I can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I've been very critical of the Conservative government's made-to-fail climate plans at the same time, I co-sponsored a bill with MPP, Lauren Coe to support electric vehicle drivers, and you know that private members' bill passed, and I was pretty proud to say, you know, a historic moment—the first green legislation to pass in Ontario history—and that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't willing to work across party lines to get things done for people.
1: Yeah, congratulations, Mike. That's quite the accomplishment there. Well, thank and, you. Uh, it's uh, it's good for the entire province for uh, for our parties to be working together. The as sort of building on what you were saying, I think the opposition parties seem to have more in common than the conservatives on a number of issues. But what I think is interesting that this COVID crisis has drawn out is the necessity of government, um, especially in times of crisis, as a manager of the chaos, the sort of intermediary between hospitals, companies, provinces, and, and even countries. And there are a number of things that this current government is doing that I never would have imagined they would support in normal times. So what do you think the, you know, what's the, what's the opposition need to do to focus at this time to make sure that this government is doing what it needs to do? And also, what do you hope is sort of one of the longer lasting uh, things that this government has implemented that you wouldn't have imagined they could uh, potentially be on, on board for before?
2: Well, you know, it's been interesting because if I just want to step back for a second, you know, since the 1980s, really, and the, you know, Reagan Thatcher revolutions, and to a a somewhat similar extent, Mulroney here in Canada, uh, you know, government's been seen as the problem. I mean Ronald Reagan famously said, you know, the worst thing you want you want to hear is uh, you know, I'm from the US government, I'm here to help. And in the current crisis, it's the exact opposite. I mean people are looking to government right now and people recognize that government is the only you know, institution, our society that has the capacity uh, from a healthcare perspective, but also from a financial perspective to address both the public health and economic crisis we're facing. And, you know, I think one of the things I'm hoping as we emerge out of this crisis that there will be more support uh, and and respect for the I think vital role government plays in our society. I mean, you know, in many respects, all government is is just a collection of citizens pooling their resources and using democratic decision making to figure out how to allocate those resources in a way that benefits people and you know the communities and the province we live in. And so, I'm hoping that you know, rabid kind of anti-government sentiment um, ends because of this crisis. And then the other one for me is there's been a huge attack on science, uh, particularly from the right, uh, but some elements <laughs> on the progressive side too, when it comes to maybe anti-vaxxers and some of those folks. Uh, and I think this, this crisis has shown what a vital role science plays and you know, experts play in our society. And, you know, there's been a lot of anti-science climate denial, for example. And, uh, you know, I think in the same way that some people denied or wanted to deny uh, this pandemic or the possibility of a pandemic that scientists and public health experts have been predicting for a number of years now. And you know, here we are in the midst of that crisis. And you know, I think the crisis has been made worse uh, because we aren't as prepared as we could have been if we'd been listening to science. And so in the same way that we need to flatten the curve uh, to stop the spread of coronavirus and save lives, I think we need to flatten the curve on climate pollution uh, to prevent and mitigate that crisis to save lives as well. And so I'm hoping that people are going to respect and listen to science uh, more than they ever have in the past. And then specifically to the Ford government, you know, this is a government that a year ago was drastically cutting public health budgets, consolidating public health units, and, and in some respects, a huge attack on public health, which is so vital to preventing illness, promoting health, just doing essential functions uh, around public health and safety in our communities. And I think this this crisis has shown what, a, what an important role uh, public health plays in our society and that we actually need to be investing more in public health. We need to be investing more in promoting health and preventing illness and making sure we're prepared uh, for public health emergencies like we're facing now. And you know, I think you're going to see a huge reversal. Uh, I don't think the Ford government's going to go back to you know, attacking public health after what we've been through the last couple of months.
0: Uh, One of the things that has struck me in this COVID response is, you know, just the level of public anxiety and angst and frustration and, and sadness about the changes in our lives that we need to do to fight COVID. And you know, you can't help but make that comparison to climate change and the kind of disruptions that we can expect if we don't flatten the the climate curve, as you as you pointed out. There is a danger in this kind of environment that that you know, sort of the rally around the flag, fact and sort of promotion of 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 current government takes the, some of the attention away. So I'm wondering for for um, your party, uh, which is there for environmental reasons and for Uh, environmental uh, groups and advocates and, you know, civil society and all of of the actors who care about this issue. How do you keep it alive in this time? And um, what do we need to do to not lose sight of the fight against climate change in this sort of like really, it seems like, you know, Corona dominated media environment?
2: Well, first of all, I think anybody who is concerned about climate, the climate crisis uh, and cares about Uh, you know, their neighbors and other human beings uh, right now is going to be 100% focused on addressing the pandemic and ensuring that we're caring for people and that, you know, we prioritize public health and saving lives. And so, you know, I don't hear a lot of people talking uh, about the climate crisis right now, and I think gratefully so, because people are focused on the pandemic. I mean, the one thing that has come out of the scientific research uh, that I think needs to be uh, play a bigger role in the conversation is in addition to a climate crisis we have an ecological crisis just with the reduction in biodiversity and the lack of green the declining amount of green space. And so that's been leading to more human to uh, animal contact, which has been one of the reasons we've seen an increase in the number of outbreaks of uh, various diseases in the last 20 years, let's say. And so already scientists are suggesting that that's one of the transmission points between animals to humans and the coronavirus. And some of that is just due to the, as humans encroach, more on animal habitat we're going to see an increase in these types of pandemics and so to me i think it's a a wake-up call that we need to be addressing the ecological biodiversity crisis that we're facing uh in order to just you know maintain human health and reduce the likelihood of these types of pandemics from a climate specific standpoint I think it's really when we start talking about the economic recovery. And, you know, I was happy to see the Ford government actually put together an all cabinet committee to start looking at economic recovery, because I think we need a glimmer of hope. We need to give people hope that we are going to get through this crisis. And I know together we will get through this crisis. And, you know, let's start planning for what the recovery is going to look like. I've been critical of the fact that No opposition members are included. You know, I realize it's a cabinet committee, but I think if you're going to really talk about economic recovery, not only do we need a whole of government approach, we need a whole of society approach. And that's going to include voices from the opposition because I think as we think about the economic recovery, we need, it's absolutely critical that we invest in building a clean and caring economy. We have to invest in the economy of the future as we recover, not the past, and that means, you know, electrifying our transportation systems. You know, I, I'm imagining a massive green building retrofit program that's going to create thousands of jobs and help people save money by saving energy. Uh, you know, I see public investment in infrastructure that's going to make us help us to adapt. to to the changing climate as well as the types of infrastructure we need to you know reduce climate pollution and so that economic recovery is going to be critical and i think this crisis has laid bare our underinvestment in the caring professions you know personal support workers uh frontline nurses uh and healthcare providers uh cleaning and janitorial staff in our healthcare facilities are all grossly underpaid, and in many cases, particularly when it comes to personal support workers and long-term care facilities, you know, are in such heightened um, levels of precarious work, you know, people having to cobble two to three jobs together in in different uh, long-term care facilities or nursing homes to be able to make ends meet, uh, I think highlights the need that we need to invest more in the caring professions, and I just want to, you know, be very clear: those are all low-carbon jobs. All those jobs, caring for people and making our communities better places to live, and making sure we, you know, we're caring for each other—they don't emit a lot of climate pollution. So I think investing in the clean economy is critical. That's where the global economy is going. That's where, you know, 21st-century jobs are. And so, if we want to be ahead of the curve and, you know, generate prosperity. That's where the economic recovery has to be focused. But we also have to recognize that investing in the caring economy is equally as important.
1: No, I I think that's, that's very right there, Mike. And I think we're seeing sort of the effect that human activity has had Uh, much more um, during this crisis, just because of the pictures that we've seen now, satellite images, photos of clear skies over normally polluted cities around the world. Uh, I heard in India, they can finally see the Himalayas again, and they haven't been able to do that in decades. So people are certainly talking about uh, how much of an impact uh, their day to day activity and their current economies are having on the environment and it seems to be something that we could hopefully build on in the future and as we come out of this, how do we try to maintain some of that uh, that quality considering um, it took a you know global disaster and and uh, a whole bunch of ec- economic inactivity in order to get to that point how do we how do we bridge that? But at the same time, even here in Canada, You know, some of the other parties, and you may not be trying to politicize this, and and most of the, uh, I think, Ontario opposition parties haven't been trying to politicize this, but the federal conservatives have been trying to politicize this quite a bit, which I find to be an interesting tact uh, on their part. They're calling on a temporary halt to the federal carbon tax, uh, which, uh, you know. Uh, credit due uh, to Premier Ford for sort of ignoring and saying that uh, this isn't what we're trying to do right now. But, you know, I'm just sort of interested in your thoughts around the uh, how do we What's the political movement look like uh, after this with uh, with the other opposition parties and and how do we get more done in this space?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, you know, let's just call it what it is. Andrew Scheer has to be about the most tone deaf politician (laughs) in Canadian history. I mean, he's being even conservatives are being critical of the way he's conducted himself during this crisis, Uh, you know and and jason kenny has broken ranks a bit in the last few days as well and so credit doug ford for you know uh being just focused on you know, how do we how do we stop the spread of this virus? How do we make sure frontline healthcare workers have personal protective equipment? You know, how do we ramp up testing? How do we make sure we have ICU and ventilator capacity? I mean, that's been his focus. And, and you know, so good for him to not engage in the climate politics that Scheer ha- has been engaged in and that Kenny, to some extent, has been as well, uh, because I don't think that's what people want us to be talking about right now. And again, I think in terms of the, you know, movement for transitioning our economy to a clean and caring economy, I think that's going to happen in the discussions around economic recovery. And so that's where my focus is. And I'm going to be pushing hard on that. Uh, but I think right now, you know, really the focus has to be on, you know, how do we save lives and contain the spread of this virus? The one thing I would say in terms of the opposition parties at Queen's Park and and just sort of almost maybe my my theory of change, is that I really think if we're going to get uh, the kind of transformative change we need to address the climate crisis, it's more likely to happen in a minority government. If you look at most of the major transformative changes in Canadian politics, it's been when there's been a minority government. And I think the reason is, is that it's hard for a majority government, one party, to implement that kind of dramatic change because you just take all the criticism is focused on you but if you can spread that out across two or three parties uh, and have a more more voices a broader uh, uh, perspective a larger uh, chunk of society all pushing for that kind of transformative change i think it makes it more politically possible and so my hope is is that is you know that as we recover from covid and we have a minority government at the federal level that we'll see stronger action on the climate crisis and my hope is you know after the next provincial election and who knows what's going to happen in ontario politics my hope is we have a minority government that can actually deliver on some of the transformative change we need to address the climate crisis
1: so you mentioned that minority government that we have federally, two of the parties are looking for new leaders right now. The, the conservatives are working to replace Andrew Scheer, although he <laughs> to seems to keep himself in the news as much as possible. Um, and they've sort of uh, they've had to change their race a little bit. Your your federal party, the Greens, are, are looking for a new leader as well. Um, just wondering, since we have you here, if you've got a horse in the race yet. And uh, what do you think the party needs to do federally to be more successful in the next election?
2: Yeah, so I I don't have a horse in the race. I've been very impressed with a number of the candidates who've already declared. And I've also been in conversations with some people who are looking to declare their candidacy as well. So I think there's going to be some strong uh, leadership. Uh, candidates. And, you know, I'm going to work with whoever the new federal leader of the party is and have a great working relationship with Joanne Roberts, who's the interim leader. And of course, Elizabeth May and I have been longtime friends for many years now. Uh, And so, you know, what I'm hoping out of the next uh, federal green leader is is a leader who's really going to paint the vision of what a clean and caring economy looks like. Uh, I think one of the things that Got, was lost in the last federal election, that there was a lot of debate around, you know, what our climate targets should be, or, you know, what are the catastrophic consequences of not addressing climate, or let's stop the pipelines. Um, and they're in that crowded out the space to talk about the economic opportunities in the clean economy. I mean, even right now in Canada, more people work in the clean energy sector than work in the oil sands. We have much faster job growth in in clean tech and clean energy sectors than we do in the oil and gas sector.
1: I, I was saying that so many times that people weren't believing me. And I'm like, no, look it up. I guarantee <laughs> you this is true. And uh, when Oh, I was absolutely. Running meter, yeah, it was unbelievable. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, the numbers are there. uh, And and so, but I I think we we haven't had that conversation enough. And so it's, it's almost like, you know, let's shift this from, you know, the burden of addressing the climate crisis to talk about the opportunity that exists in addressing the climate crisis to generate more jobs, to create more prosperity and to have that jobs and prosperity happen, you know, through an economy that isn't going to lead to pollution and is going to ensure that we have you know uh, clear skies that are going to reduce the number of people who have asthma and other respiratory illnesses um, that are you know going to live in in a world that is you know more prosperous and and has more secure and better jobs while at the same time having a cleaner uh, environment that we can all go outside and enjoy life and and so I think it's that hopeful vision that I really want to see the next uh, green Party uh, candidate leader present and uh, and to really build on the incredible legacy that Elizabeth May has provided. You know, when she was elected leader of the Green Party of Canada, uh, nobody thought a Green could ever get elected in, in this country in a first past the post voting system. And here we are, you know, a decade later and across the country at the federal and provincial level, um, 18 elected Greens. And that's an incredible accomplishment. And, you know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth opened the opportunity for that. And now it's for those of us who have followed in her footsteps to build on that foundation and that legacy.
0: And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario, for coming on to Ontario Loud. Uh, he is the first current party leader to come on to the show. Uh, we technically have had two of the four because Stephen Del Duca came on when he was a candidate. and Now that he is the leader, I guess we can say we've had two of the current leaders. However, uh, first Current contemporaneous in the legislature leader on Ontario Loud. Make it history, Mike. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, also to uh, your press secretary, Jason, for reaching out and setting this up. It uh, was a really great discussion. I think our listeners are really going to like it. Ontario Loud is Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Grima Talwar Kapoor, and me, Chris Martin, Aisha Anwar, and Harmon Mundy, our uh, volunteers. They do our shareables on social media. They help us out with research. They appear on the pod sometimes. They're amazing. Most of what you give on Patreon goes to them, so uh, support on Patreon, guys. If you have any thoughts on what you heard today, go to OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at at OntarioLoud. And yeah, that's really it. We'll be back on Friday for a discussion on Ontario's education system with elected president Liz Stewart. Really looking forward to that. We just recorded that today. It's going to be a fascinating discussion on how... Uh, and what factors caused uh, one of Ontario's most powerful teachers unions to want to settle with the government. And yeah, we'll see you on Friday.